This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning into this conversation, which features Craig LeCicero from Forbidden. Now, the catalyst for the chat with Craig is due to the fact that Forbidden, they are back, and they are back in a big way. They're on the festival circuit, and who knows what the future holds, but you'll get plenty of glimpses into what that might be, courtesy of the insight that Craig shares throughout the conversation, which also features some deep insight into his time with Chuck Schuldiner and Death, and also Jeff Tate. He played in a Queenstrike album, you may not be aware. He talks all about that as well. Now, toward the end of the conversation, we started talking about current affairs, social and political matters. So hopefully we can connect sometime in the near future, particularly around the time of the US federal election. That would be interesting because I have a feeling Craig and I would agree on a lot of topics, but there's others that we wouldn't. And I think that's a great thing. I think diversity of thought and opinion is what makes the world go round. Okay, if you are tuning in via the podcast apps, I have a tune to share with you. I have selected one from way back of an album called Forbidden Evil. This one's titled Chalice of Blood, and once it's done, we'll dive into the conversation. You people on YouTube, you know the drill. I can't play music, so you'll hear the chat now. Either way, let's do it.
Australia. Spot on. Yep. Gold Coast. Yep. Yeah. 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 I, I, I saw there was a country code, but I didn't recognize it. I should have because I have one of my best friends lives out there in Melbourne. Ah, uh, sweet. Yeah. A couple of thousand kilometers south, but not, nice part of the world, mate, when they're not in those huge bloody lockdowns. Put it that way. <laughs> God, it got crazy for a while. So where, where are you at exactly? Gold Coast. So just south of Brisbane. Oh, okay. I was going to say Brisbane. So you're, you're way down there. You're at the oh, bottom we're... of the world. Oh, Australia is, yeah, but I'm probably, I suppose it'd be in the, the subtropical middle where we are. So beach country, like Florida. Oh, no, I was thinking of Adelaide. That's the lowest. Yeah, that, it doesn't get any lower than that, right? I, I think Hobart, actually, if you talk about low, the Tasmania is right right down there. Uh, Hobart's freezing, but beautiful. My God, it's a stunning part of the world. Um, but a bit different to where I'm from, that's for sure. Okay. All right. I just like to know where, uh, what I'm talking to people. You know, if you're telling me you're from Cleveland, I'm like, okay. Right <laughs> yeah, yeah. Australia is like the United States, and that was there's so much. Uh, we can get snow here, believe it or not. A lot, not a lot of people from North America know that, but uh, we've got snowfields, believe it or not. They're in New South Wales and parts of Victoria. So, but uh, I've only visited them a couple of times. It's a bit too cold for me, mate. <laughs> yeah, I was actually not that we should spend a whole bunch of time talking about this, but I actually watched a documentary uh, that explained why the outback is so empty. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, how the uh, the mountainous ranges uh, steal the the uh, the cold uh, air that would drop rain on the middle of that that part of the uh, continent. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, so I was like learning all this stuff. I'm like, that's why. So these are always going to be kind of just desolate in, in the middle of, of Australia. And it's like, why don't many people? I think it was on YouTube actually. Like, why don't why don't people live yeah. in the middle of Australia and all that land? So they explained it all uh, rather. Uh, well, yeah, there's something like less than I could be wrong here with the statistic, but it's something like less than 20 percent of the available land is habitable in Australia. So there you go. So yeah. that explains why there's 23, 24 million of us on this huge continental mass. But, uh, mate, there's just not many places human civilization can flourish clearly because, you know, for tens of thousands of years, it was hunter gatherer culture and it just doesn't support building cities and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Then not to mention your fucking spider season and fucking burning, exploding bushes. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, we get lots of snakes. Uh, the truth is, mate, the, the real danger starts in the water, especially just a couple of hundred kilometers north of me. That's when you start getting Irukandji jellyfish, which are almost microscopic. They're a bit, you can see them. They're tiny. You get stung by one of them, mate. Just have a look at some YouTube videos of some Swedish tourists or whatever who jumped into the wrong part of the water and... Uh, got stung by an Irukandji jellyfish. That shit lasts for tens of hours, I think, Ooh. in terms of the, the agony of it. Then you've got the crocodiles and, of course, the big ones, the sharks. And every yeah, week, it, mate, someone's getting bitten by one. So, Not to mention the insult to injury when you get stung by a jellyfish, you have to have someone piss on you, you know, like. Oh yeah, I think it's all that kind of <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I think I'd rather stay stung, to be honest with you, but it could just be me, eh? 
<laughs> well, we'll see what you're feeling like when you when your insides are ready to turn inside out. All right. Well, anyway, let's, let's rock and roll. I've listened to a few of your interviews, and look, it sounds like a bit of a sliding doors moment with the Anthrax and the Alcatraz Metal Festival being the catalyst for your return. Is is that it in a nutshell? And do you feel as though the band has unfinished business all the same? Oh yeah, we we've definitely. I mean, we've had unfinished business. We never. The thing about Forbidden is is it's a band that's predicated and and uh, you know, lived in the unfinished business universe. It, it just never never kind of had everything work out and it attributes to a lot of different reasons and some of it's bad luck and some of it's not bad luck so it's just you know the way you know i mean you could call it bad luck but i don't think so um but yeah i honestly if you've been watching any of the interviews or listening to anything then you know and it's true i i did not uh think i was going to be doing anything like this uh without russ because i knew russ was retired so yet i respect to him i just kind of like you know, put it down. But he told me years ago, he's like, if you ever want to do it, do it. You know, like Hmm. I can't do it. You know, so uh, when the time came, sorry about my my phone. Actually, you know what? Let me turn that ringer off. If you don't, is it going to bother you? Actually, should I just just let it go? No, it's no worries for me. It should be turned down. Yeah, it should be turned. Anyway, but uh, so I didn't really anticipate for C, uh, my soothsayer uh, abilities were not working and I didn't see this one coming. So, you know, it was like a, a lot of things came into play and, you know, once, uh, that email did arrive from Alcatraz festival saying, would you be willing to play this slot? You know, a, a bunch of other things happened behind me that made me realize it could be done. And I, and I was like, Oh, well, fuck. I have no, I've, I've run out of excuses. You know, like I've got a great singer who's capable more than capable and will command the way that, you know, a crowd expects a forbidden show to be commanded. Cause Russ just wasn't feeling like that for the last few years. You know, he, he, it was hard for him to get motivated and get up, the, you know, the alcohol, his, yeah. his physical ailments, you know, having mm-hmm. a little spark there is going to be pretty, uh, pretty significant. I think when people see uh, Norman Skinner. Mm. Killer. Yeah. Hey, look, as I said, I've listened to a fair few of your interviews, so there's some copy out there already. So I've, I've made an effort here to come up with some different questions for you, ones that I don't. I, I can answer whatever you got. I, I got, I got time. We're good. We got, we got at least forty five minutes here, so that's right. right. Let's talk about the album Green, okay? Because that's an album that never gets mentioned. Yet I feel it's oh, it's my personal favorite. I won't say it's your best one or what have you. Ah, it's certainly my right. personal favorite from, from you guys um you know that's my era um meaning the 90s you know, metal maniacs i remember giving it a, they gave it a rap so i thought i'd check it out there were a couple of writers there like craig zala that i really liked and they were generally on my wavelength so that's how i used to get into things back then and um i, I still think it sounds like a very modern metal album it's heavy it's groovy and it's very dark but here's the question for you it also contains what I believe is some of your best guitar playing from the perspective that it expanded uh, your technique and you evolved to become not just fast, but a lot heavier as well. Do you agree? Sure. I mean, you know, a lot of, you got to understand, like uh, for me personally, my trajectory as a guitar player, uh, just to give you some perspective. Um, I joined Forbidden Evil in 1985. I've been playing for barely a year. Okay. Mm. Uh, you know, Rob Flynn was, was the leader at that time. And I, I looked up to him. I knew him for about the whole, the entire time I played guitar. I knew Rob, uh, I, I got a guitar and then I met him and then we became friends and then I wasn't good enough. And then all of a sudden an opportunity came and I was just good enough. So my evolving as a player 
happened incredibly fast with Rob being there. And then once we needed another guitar player, we found Glenn. And then, you know, uh, Glenn wasn't a thrash metal guy, you know, at all. He was like kind of a, he came from the glam and rock and roll school, you know, like George Lynch and Eddie Van Halen and Ingvay and all those guys. So, uh, but it, it worked, right? But when we got Tim Calvert, that was a huge leap because, again, not a thrash guy, but an incredible guitar player, well-versed in songwriting structures and, you know, not having thrash guys next to me actually made me a lot better because I was definitely a thrash guy. And then, uh, but, you know, I'm also a Beatles guy. You know what I mean? Like, I grew up on the Beatles. And um, so I've had this sensibility always, of you know, I, I guess just great songwriting and structures and things like that. So, you know, you got to remember, so Twisted into Form happens. It's this great merging of, of uh, two minds that actually worked great together. It was the teamwork for Tim Calvert myself was was incredible. So, you know, when that's all over with, uh, everything in the music industry basically changes. And uh, we were still, you know, we were, we were evolving like at another fucking breakneck amount. <laughs> like we had songs for the demo that were just like light years ahead of what everyone else was doing as far as, you know, melodically and, you know, the compositions and stuff, and, but the industry had just changed. And when uh, grunge as people like to call it now, it wasn't grunge when I knew it, it was, it was rock, it was heavy rock from mm -hmm. Seattle and other places. When that shit came along, I immediately knew that it's going to change the industry. As soon as I heard Alice in Chains and Facelift before the album came out, or even when I heard, uh, Soundgarden's, uh, it was uh, Loud Love. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, I loved them immediately because I felt like they just pushed everything off. You know, like this thrash metal shit's cool, but it's getting a little rigid. It's getting a little formulatic. I'm getting a little bored. And then here come these rock and roll bands coming out here, making these great, grandiose, uh, more melodic, you know, deep recordings. So that's what you kind of get to when you get, we start going in, it's not that we like consciously changed our direction at all when we did distortion, but you know, the, the industry had changed so much. Our version of thrash had, had evolved a bit and uh, it was still very technical. So we do all that. Then we're finished. We're kind of frustrated. I'm getting to green. We're finished and we're kind of frustrated and we're like, we should, you know, it's just too bad that this great album got overlooked in the United States and Europe distortion i'm talking about in in europe it was really responded to very favorably we did a very successful tour we come back home we tour with fucking uh testament and it's like half packed not you know this is testament like you, you, this is not not great and then we tour malevolent creation where we're, we're headlining and it's like this is okay but we weren't we were frustrated so when we wrote green you had a lot of pent up fuck you full-on fucking anger like we don't give a fuck and but this is mostly coming from myself and steve jacobs of uh, the drummer we were completely locked in like we're just gonna completely rip a hole through everything and you know it's not it's gonna be like our caveman record and, and that's the way we kind of looked at it so we use our anger that way and uh and everybody contributed great stuff but like steve and i were really locked into this and that's what you hear on that record there's a lot of a lot of anger. Of course, it's tuned lower, which we'd never really mm -hmm. done before. Uh, but you know, I was listening to Sabbath. I was on a huge Sabbath kick at that time, and I was I was really getting into uh, everything from like you know Masters of Reality to uh, Sabotage, with, like in that era, and that was all C sharp stuff mostly. 
So we started to fuck around with some stuff in C sharp and it just flowed. It just flowed. It, I, I was feeling every bit of it. I wrote lyrically, I wrote a lot about my life without really realizing it. You know, there's a lot of things going on there. And I, I don't really have an explanation for it, but I do know it, it influenced a lot of other bigger bands that came up in the late 90s and early 2000s that I never knew about until later. Uh-huh. Can you name one? That's interesting. Lamb of God, Shadows Fall, Slipknot, uh, you know, that down that line, uh, God okay. forbid, mm. uh, you know, all, all, all the new, not, they weren't new metal bands, all the newer metal what, bands. They, yeah. what do they call metalcore? Like a yeah. lot of the metalcore stuff. And, um, yeah. And, you know, individually as time went on, I, I started to realize it. And my first inkling, cause I'd, I'd gone on to do man made God after that, which was like, uh, started as very experimental and then, we we refined it and became a really great rock band and got signed by American Rick Rubin and all that blah blah blah. Mm -hmm. But uh, I we went on to one of our first tours. I went on was with Murder Dolls, which was Joey Jordanson, and he didn't know who the fuck I was for the first week of the tour. And uh, you know he's like I, I could tell he was like whatever, just this rock band. You know we were we were not new metal. We were not fucking anything. We we're like classic metal like uh or not classic metal classic rock like cr kind of a cross i say it was like a cross between say foreigner and bad company and mm. soundgarden you know it was way more yeah but we didn't fit with anyone so um jacobs and the other guys go out one night and they run into joey at a bar i think it was a strip club as a matter of fact and joey starts asking my drummer hey you know what's up with your band and who's that guitar player and da, da, da. so oh we used to be in this little little uh, thrash metal band you know, what was it called? He's like, forbidden. He's all, he freaked out. He's like, that's Craig. Oh shit. So then he came up to me the next day. He's all, dude. And he had a gazillion questions and it was mostly about green. That album was, uh, he said that that album was a huge influence on him writing the riffs uh, for the first Slipknot record. And you could hear those little, da, 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 da. there's like yeah. those little moments in there, like mm -hmm. face down hero type thing and stuff like that. So, I didn't know. And that, that was the beginning of a, of a onslaught of running into bands on tour and people being like, dude, green, 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 you know, I mean, a lot. Okay. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So it sort of negates my next question would be, which is that do you feel that album should get more respect in your catalog? It already does clearly. But one of the interesting things that I know just in your timeline of events is that that episode, I, I think I'm right in saying this, that was your first recorded output after spending time with Chuck in death as Chuck's guitarist. No, in the distortion, band. distortion was distortion. Uh -huh. was. There you go. But I mean, okay. distortion was pretty much written though. Um, in fact, when I went out with Chuck and Depp, I had the distortion demo that got us signed with me that I was handing out. And that's what got us signed when we got back home. We got um, our first bites from Europe and signed with uh, Gun, which was part of BMG. So that was a, that was started as a really good thing. Um, but no, Chuck didn't really shit, dude. If it would have been more influenced by Depp, then it would probably have been more like more solos and more, you know. That was going to be my point. Chuck was, yeah. yeah, Chuck yeah. was very, very like classic metal oriented even though he in fact i mean it's pretty well documented he felt trapped a little bit by having to do the vocals in death and uh you know he really wanted to do things that are much more melodic it was control, control denied kind of demonstrates where he mm -hmm. wanted to go and he loved you know classic heavy metal 
you know, I mean, he embraced the cheese, you know, in, in battle. He had no problem with like invisible grapefruits and, you know, stuff like that. And, uh, and more power to him. I love him for that, man. And when, when painkiller came out before painkiller came out, he visited us in Tampa when we played a show for been played in 1990. And he had the cassette, uh, pre pre cassette of that album. And we were well, like driving around listening to painkiller. He's all dude, it's so metal. I can't even believe how metal it is. He loves that shit. What are some of your more prominent memories of working with Chuck? They're all good. I, well, I think what happens with a lot of people that played with Chuck over a long period of time is that he, you know, he had, he was definitely paranoid. I mean, it, it was undiagnosed, the brain stuff that he had going on. So yeah. uh, I didn't, since I played with him basically for three weeks, no problem. You know, we, <laughs> it was good. Easiest time we both ever had the the guys in the band had commented since and you know that that was the best line of death that ever gotten uh along with each other mm. you know and that was funny because i'm used to being a leader in my own band and i didn't have to be a leader i was just a, i was a soldier you know and uh it was really cool taking the lead from somebody and just he gave me complete freedom to you know play the rhythms however you want to or no, play the rhythms how they go but put, do you Whatever your solos, you know, feel them out. Doesn't matter. You don't have to figure out these things. We didn't have time. I didn't even have time to sit down and start noodling through every solo, uh, you know, uh, note for note, because I, I literally only had two days to learn the entire record before we went on oh tour. Oh my god! Yeah. Wow. Shit. Okay. What was was there ever hinted or potentially discussed about you joining full time? Yeah, he did. After a couple of weeks, he asked me if I was interested in finishing the tour and writing a record with him, and writing with him. He wanted me to write with him, which is something that he doesn't really mm. offer up to other guitar players. Um, historically, I know that. So, uh, but I, I mean, I was so loyal to Forbidden, and you know, I I believed in the band. We were just about to get a record deal. I did, you know, I, there was a little resentment coming from the Forbidden camp at the time. They weren't exactly stoked that I left them to go, you know, do something other than Forbidden because we were all suffering the same purgatory for years you know like no one, mm. no one's really interested in the band and then here i am getting this opportunity they thought i might leave but i didn't i'm a loyal guy mm. were you mates with ralph santola back in the day i mean he was my friend dude i, I loved ralph but i mean he was you know he drank too much you know i mean there's just no two ways about it but he was also highly intelligent uh great theory the music theory guy a uh, great guitar player, sweet, sweet man, like big heart, but he drank too fucking much and it took a toll on him, you know? Mm. Yeah. He told me a story once where he thought that he was listening to you play on one of the live, the, one of the additional live bonus discs that came out with individual thought patterns. And I think he think he, then he worked out it was him, but he remember him saying to me that he was raving to you about, hey, listen to all this great guitar playing, and it was actually him. I thought that was one of the more funnier anecdotes that <laughs> he shared with me. <laughs> it's true. No, that's true. And Because somebody fucked up, you know, with, with Chuck not around, there wasn't any, enough fact-checking. And they grabbed the, I think it was the previous tour before the one I went to Europe. They, they grabbed some stuff, and they just threw my name on there. And I was like, I, I was like, oh, that's cool. Let me listen. That's not me. You know, I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't me. Because he was actually trying to play things note for note, and I and I was yeah. not, you know. So I was like, mm. "Come on!" But yeah, uh, no, it, I I love Ralph. You know, I I I think he the world misses his fun. He had a lot of fun. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was it was a shock to be honest with you because I only spoke to him within twelve months before he passed. I think it was, and the night before he passed, I was actually talking to one of his best friends, Bjorn from Soil Work, who he spent some uh, time living over in Sweden with, and it was so serendipitous that I was talking to to Bjorn, one of his other best mates. And I think about six months later, I was on the phone to Bill Hudson, who was beside his bed when he passed away. And yeah. um, just in the course of doing what I do here, of course, I don't know them outside of outside of these sort of conversations. But uh, yeah, it was he's he's sort of Mister Everywhere, Mister Kevin Bacon, sort of uh, you know seven, six degrees of separation, Ralph Santola, and that he seemed to have something to do with anybody and everybody. And I haven't come across a word. Maybe the maybe Glenn Benton might have something bad to say about him, but I'm sure Glenn has something bad to say about plenty yeah. of people. But um, yeah. I mean, anyone can you know we could we can cherry pick the I don't I tend to not cherry pick the bad things about people. You know, what we call that the 666 degrees of Santala. <laughs> I think so, mate. It's going to stick now, I think, after this chat. I think it will. <laughs> let's let's talk about Forbidden again, though. So your debut, it is considered uh, one of the great debuts in thrash metal. Um, wh- how do you feel nowadays? Because it's is it 40 years ago now or thereabouts, 35 Not years quite. ago? 35, it's, yeah. It's, the four, all, it's right around us. the corner. Yeah. yeah, but do, do you still do you feel like as though that is the album that defines Forbidden? No, no, not at all. But I mean, that's not for me to decide. You know, a, a Black Sabbath doesn't have a choice. Paranoid defines Black Sabbath. That's not their choice. That's just what people decide. So at the same time, I think just as many people think that Twisted and Form defines this as well. And you know, each one in some, you know, each. The thing about Forbidden is that people will literally argue about what their favorite record is all the way down the line. But the first two got the most exposure. So those are going to always win in your landslide of, you know, knowing what you're talking about. But a lot of people, when Omega Wave came out, they didn't know about it as much. But I keep finding out from doing these interviews that people are like, now that's my favorite Forbidden album because it had a little bit of everything, you know. And it was very clear. It was very concise. We knew what we were doing. We had time to write it. It was, I think with the first record, they say your first record takes your whole life to write. The next record takes six months or whatever. Um, you know, that's kind of how it was. Like Forbidden Evil was written with three guitar players, really, uh, with Rob writing part of it with me and then Glenn writing part of it with me. So it was, you know, it had that going for it. And then and then mm. we got a lot more uh, refined as we went along. But everyone likes what they like, and you can't really tell somebody what the best of something is. I, I find that that's just insulting uh, to them and to me. Like, just like what you like. You know, Forbidden Evil's not a mature record, but yet it's, if you think about how old we were, it's insanely mature. You know, it's like, I, I listen to the lyrics, I'm like, oof. But then I'm like, well, I was fucking 18 or seven. I, yeah, well, that I was being written went from the age of 15 to, to 18 for me. I turned 19 yeah. in the studio. You were very, I noticed that when I looked on Wikipedia to see how old you were, you were basically a school kid back then. Yeah, I went, I went, yeah, I went straight out of high school. And through that summer, I think, you know, it didn't take us long before we got a lot of interest. We'd made the demo right out of high school that got assigned. And, you know, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, a whirlwind of things happen. And, and, you know, as a consequence for me personally, I can only speak for myself. I, I, you know, missed a lot of maturity. Um, I didn't grow much mentally until after twisted in a form mm-hmm. because I had more time to sit back and take stock of 
who the fuck I was or what the fuck I was doing. It's just when you don't, when you start that young, man, it can fuck your head up. And um, I feel like it, it fucked my head up a fair share. What was your, your your parents' opinion of you being involved in the music industry at such a young age? Well, my mom, I mean, my dad had lived in Vegas and uh, he, he was a history professor at UNLV, actually a history, do- he had his doctorate and yeah, he ended up being like, he was, he was a brilliant man, but uh, he didn't understand what the fuck was going on. My mom knew that this school wasn't doing it for me. He really wants to play guitar. It's quieter than drums. You know, uh, let's let him play guitar. You know, so my mm-hmm. first year of high school, about three or four months into school, I got my first guitar. And that's where that whole thing started. So she was supportive. Um, you know, once once she realized, excuse me, that that was actually pretty good or get it going to get good. Because um, like I said, I started out really fast and all of a sudden I was like throwing, throwing riffs around with all these heavy hitters, you know. Mm. She gave me support. And my dad, uh, he, he was proud of me. You know, he didn't know where it was all going to go, but he ended up passing away in early 92. Um, so he didn't watch all the ups and downs after that. He just knew that I did a couple albums. As far as he saw, that was going well. And, you know, he didn't see all the, this stuff, he didn't get all that. But I mean, yeah, he was tolerant. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. What about... Back in 2010, it looked like for all money you guys were back. And I think you, you mentioned in a recent interview that you're still technically with Nuclear Blast, but back then you had a new album out and you were on Nuclear Blast. So was that just a bit of a false start or something else? Why did we stop? Yeah. Uh, well, we had with our drummer, Mark Hernandez, who had to uh, – basically leave the band at the worst possible time. When we were in Europe doing a couple festivals, he was getting ultimatums from his family and his wife, yeah. you know, basically it's, it's me or, you know, your, your music. So he left, uh, when we were in Europe between two festival dates, Bloodstock and Gruel Assault, he left after Bloodstock, didn't leave, but said, I got to go. So we finished that show. It was very awkward. Finished that show the next day. and then. Uh, we're like struggling because we, we were supposed to come back to Europe and do a tour and he was going to play drums with me on that too because he was in Demonica so I had to find one drummer to do two things it was crazy so basically it's a long story where but we ended up replacing him and finding you know Gene Hoagland came in and did some shows for us but he couldn't do that tour we had to cancel the entire fucking tour a week before it got happened which is a disaster you know so that was the first blow. And then we got Sasha Horn to play drums. We won a uh, worldwide hunt for drummers. We had drum- We had guys coming in from Australia, like Europe, like Italy, and it's everywhere. Like whoever was good enough, I, I told them, you don't, just because you're coming in from another country, you've got to pay for it, and it doesn't mean you get the gig. But they still mm-hmm. came in, and the guy who won lived in New Mexico, and now he's an ex-hoarder. And um, he's fu- he was great, but he came into a situation that was very... You know, everybody just kind of like, oh, this, you know, this, this kind of sucks. You know, it really hurt us to lose that tour. And then we went and did our, what turned out to be our last show at Metal Fest year, uh, Chile, which is, you know, great show, massive bill, 10,000 people inside an arena, um, you know, playing with everybody from Testament, Creator, and Exodus, and Destruction, and 
uh, you know, all, all of my peers, Annihilator. And mm-hmm. It was great. And uh, we were supposed to come home and get ready to go play Wacken. And Russ told me on the airplane he just wasn't into it. He didn't really want to travel anymore. He didn't really want to go to Wacken and just play for a day and then fly home a couple of days later. The job, the dead, the dead. So I was just like, that was kind of the moment where I realized it was going to dry up. If we're, if we're canceling Wacken, I told him, if we're canceling Wacken, I refuse to push you to do this mm-hmm. anymore. And his answer is, well, you know, you'll do more. I'm like, not if you cancel Wacken, dude. So that was kind of the agreement. It wasn't like that we quit. It was more like, I don't, I don't see it happening. So that was kind of it. It, it didn't exactly go yeah. like consciously, brands breaking up, fuck all this. It wasn't like anger. It was more like, fuck. It was like, you know, uh, fatigue, frustration. This business is tough. You know, um, if you don't constantly work at it, you're, you're not going to really gain a rung on the ladder, you know? So, and, and he wasn't, he wasn't okay to do that. He didn't really want to do the work because physically it was hard and he had the alcohol problem. It's pretty tough on you as the band leader though, isn't it? You got all these wonderful opportunities there and you got your shit together and you can see this bright future ahead and people for various reasons, as you've described, just aren't willing to participate and be part of the team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately, you know, and I play with Mark, in uh, Dress the Dead, which is another band, you know, and I, I've been playing with him for years. But um, ultimately, when it came to Forbidden coming back together, he was never in my equations because I can't, I can't rely on him to like be able to go on tour and do the things that need to be done without, you know, some people just this. It's just not in their makeup to be able to do it because their life is set up a certain way. So I was like, you know, like a few times over the years, he'd be like, "Yeah, dude, like." If Forbidden ever gets back together, I'm all if Forbidden ever gets back together, remember you quit. Mm. You know, just because we're playing together in this band doesn't mean we're playing together in that band. So, and, and then, you know, it, there enters Chris Contos. I was going to say, it's not like you've gone backwards, is it? You've got one of the. Like, you, no worries. A little, little hay fever going on in here. Yeah, same, right, actually. Sorry. I was just had to take some antihistamines before I got on the call. Yeah. But it's it's not like you've gone backwards. I mean, if anything, these trials and tribulations have set you up for a pretty glorious next few years, really, especially if Chris sticks around. Potentially. I mean, we Chris and I play together already in the boneless ones. And I've fucking been tight with Chris for, you know, 30 plus years. And uh, I love him. We get along great. I don't know. I can't really describe it. I don't know exactly how to, you know, uh, quantify our relationship. But uh, we when when I decided we were going to do this show, I didn't know who the drummer was going to be. I, I had not made up my mind that I even want to approach Chris necessarily to be the guy, but I did call him and asked him if he'd be interested. Cause I mean, one of the things on the email that was sent to me is, would you be interested in having Chris Contos play drums? Cause it would make a great story and you play with them in the boneless ones. And I'm like, huh. yeah, I don't know if I want to push it. You know, we're such good friends. Um, but he was great. And the first thing I did when I told him, I said, look, I'm going to do this forbidden thing. He's like, oh, and I'm like, and I want to offer you an opportunity to try out and see if you like it. But I'm also going to talk to some other guys and see, you know, where it lies. And I did. And, and but what Chris told me right off the bat, he's like, yeah, probably push our friendship. He gave me a bunch of names too. Like, that's how cool he was about it. He's like, what about this guy? What about that guy? You know, hmm. so, which tells you how fucking mature he was about the entire thing. So I, I circled around, I talked to a bunch of people and 
they all wanted to do it, but no one lived in town that was good enough, you know, except for Mark. And I already explained that. So it just was not a, on the table. Um, so I circled back around. I said, look, dude, I can pull the trigger on this and you cannot do it. But are you going to be resentful if you see me doing this and go like, I could have went and done that. You know, that could have been something I fucking did. And he's all, fuck, you're right. So let's just fucking do it. So I'm glad he said, yes, it's been great so far. The real work has really begins this weekend when we start full rehearsals. But uh, Chris is amazing. He's as good as any of the drummers that ever played in Forbidden in his own way. Um, he's fucking exciting, you know. Uh, he's got some hard, hardcore and punk in him, which is always helpful to me. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited. I mean, he's as good as all those guys. They're all great. Each and every drummer that played in Forbidden is great. Paul Bostaff, have you still got a, are you still mates with him? Yeah, I am. Uh, but he's doing the Carrie King thing, and it's like, like super secret lockdown. Nobody can talk about it. You know, no one hears about it because no one's allowed to talk about it. Um, and I reached out to him, and, you know, he's like, yeah, I'll call you back. And never. But, you know, he knew, I think he knew that something was going to happen with Forbidden. Like, you know, and he can't do it. He just simply does not have the time. His life, once the Carrie King kick, thing kicks off, that's going to be his focus. So there's, I don't need a guy that's going to come in, put his toes in the water and then go out. And people got to remember, Paul was in the band from 1986 to 1991. And that was it. Mm-hmm. That was it. Like they're all, oh, you're bringing Paul back. Like guys, I, you know, he, he did not have the time to do it. And nor was he really asked. He was, I, well, I should say he was asked once. When we first did the reunion shows in, in 2008, I'd asked him in 2007 before all that had happened if he'd be interested in doing it. And he was. But as soon as the guys in Testament heard that he was going to come back to Forbidden, they needed a drummer and they just went whoop and they just oh, went shit. and grabbed him and he did Formation of Damnation. So that's why Gene Hoagland had to come in and step in. You know, because our drummers, they, I should mention also that Steve Jacobs, people have asked about Steve. And uh, he played on Distortion and Green, and he's fucking amazing. But he damaged his shoulder really bad over the years. And he basically can't play drums like he used to. I don't even know if he plays them anymore at all because he's, he's so, you know, hurt his shoulder so bad, which is a shame because he was as talented, if not, you know, the greatest drummer I've ever played with. He had, he had a lot going on, man. He was really, really good. And uh, it's too bad. I feel mm-hmm. for him. You've got another, you got a, I don't know whether you'd call it a left turn in your career, but people might not realize that you were the guitarist. And I think he wrote the the Queen Shrike album or the banner that it was, how would you describe it? The Jeff Tate solo album that was released as a Queen Shrike album. You wrote that, didn't you? I, I wrote to what was given to me and rewrote a lot of it. If I wrote it, it would have been a lot different. Okay. Hmm. First, okay. This, it's funny you're even asking this. Um, Okay, first of all, I have a friend, Jason Slater, who just passed away a couple of years ago. He's he was a producer of that record, been my friend for a long time. Brilliant guy, great, great guy, fucking hell, tons of health ailments at the time. You know, things are going on. But Jeff had asked him, he's like, hey, you know, can you do this record with me? It's got to be heavy and it's got to be very aggressive. And he's like, okay, like, what, what are you thinking? And he's like, I just want it to be heavy. So, so he suggested me as a guitar player, you know, and he knew Forbidden. He's like, oh, that guy, yeah, that'd be great. Guy from Forbidden would be great. It's all just, the way that Jeff thinks is like very flighty. I'd like to tell you that he's, uh, uh, you know, what, what would be the word I'd use? Uh, 
that he plods his fucking moves out and he's he's smart and strategic. <laughs> there you go. But that's just not what not, he does. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, the wines and the fucking show tunes and but I agreed the price was right. I I said, okay, you know, but I I'm gonna I told I told uh my friend Jason, I said, I'm gonna work on him every day and tell him that this should not be a Queensbreak album. This should be a Jeff Tate solo album. He's all, yeah, I will too. So we had this little thing where every day we'd find a moment to like needle him into like, hey, you know, this this new Jeff Tate solo record. But he'd already made a record deal with uh, Cleopatra under the uh, mm. the guys that he had to release the Queensryche record. They wanted Queensryche. So mm. Jeff Tate's Queensryche was what it was. And I, every day I'd be like, dude, this is not a Queensryche record. You're not giving, there was very little time. We were basically, here's how it worked. I'd show up a day. And they play me some demos that Jason wrote, all these musical demos that Jason basically had written. And I go, hmm, yeah, that one's okay. That's cool. And then we like start basically fucking re-recording guitars and I'd rewrite parts on the spot and make them sound more interesting. Some did sound a little Queens Reiki, but most of it was not. Even no matter what I did would have never sounded like Queens Reiki. So and I would just just fly through the day and like, okay, double that. And like, okay, am I going to be able to go home and even work on this or learn? It's like, no, that's good enough. That's what the entire process was. I was oh like, gosh. holy yeah. shit, we are fucking, what are we doing here? You know, so that's why I was so uh, annoyed. I was actually really annoyed by the end of it at, at Jeff. I'm like, how could you let this happen, bro? Who's running your career for you? Like, you know, this is, you just want to get it out so bad. You don't care if our shoelaces are tied together while we're running out the door to do it. And then, you know, he wanted all these guitar players to come in and play solos instead of just having like, I said, why don't we get another That's guy? Fine. I actually suggested Tim Calvert. I said, I said, let me get Tim. He's the biggest Queensryche fan I know. He would be fucking honored. It would be amazing. Uh, but I guess, oops, sorry about that. My computer yeah. shut off. So the light went dark here. But, uh, you know, it would be great if we get Tim to do it. But Tim was a pilot at the time. And he had just, I believe he just got diagnosed with ALS. Didn't know that at the time, but. They weren't even into paying anybody else. They just wanted to pay me. Like, that's good enough. Or not they, Jeff. Jeff and his wife, the manager. So that's how it kind of came together. And it was just a collection of demos that I had basically made sound better. And then we had different drummers playing. After I finished my tracks to a click, they put oh on different God. drummers. Simon Wright, Paul Bostap, you know, all these different, you know, there's a guy mm -hmm. named Evan Batista, who was really good, who played on it, didn't get enough credit. Um, Maybe there might have been one or two more drummers. I, but it was just a, a fucking mishmash of good musicians and no cohesiveness. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, your contribution is is very good. It's got to be said. But yeah, right guitarist, wrong moment. That sort of a situation, I think. And uh, I don't think people realize it's you that played all the guitars on it, except for the solos. I understand now. So I think it's do, do would you would you include that album as a part of your broader discography or do you sort of put it off to the side as one of those things? Can I be, can I do both? <laughs> <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, it it is a thing. It's, it's a thing I did, and and I'm not gonna you know deny that I did it. Um, it's not a complete embarrassment or anything, but if I if I had done it my way, I would have had a couple months to work on it. Go through those demos, weed it out, rewrite everything. Uh, if I didn't have another guitar player, I would have properly figured out alternate parts so I'm not playing the same things, harmonized it, 
you know, really put my fucking better skills forward that I have, you know, but they, you know, there's just no time for it. So it's just like an aggressive, weird, uh, odd mishmash. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. But yeah, your, your guitar playing stands up on it regardless. So look, you've been through a lot. You've done a lot. You've lived a lot of life. Okay. So the first part of my question is what's been the most challenging episode of, uh, your life in, in relation to music so far? Ooh, I don't know if it's even forbidden. I, I, um, you know, uh, I, I, I think that my, the man-made God era that I, when I got to work with Rick Rubin and we were right on the brink of becoming a major, uh, band in America, major success, um, radio hit, you know, um, before the album was even out, we had a song out on ra- uh, radio that was charting all over the country. And, uh, having that situation being having the album come out like a year and a half later than we wanted it to, um, because record labels were merging. It was a big thing going on. So it's a really heavy story, but you know, working with Rick Rubin and having it kind of disappear because our singer just didn't have the mental stamina and capacity to work through it. Like he didn't understand this guy was great. His name is pan fucking great. He's a cool dude, but he didn't get, the amount of work that it takes once your album's out or even before your album's out to win people over. He thought it was all going to happen overnight. That was his naive yeah. point of view of the world. So he got really frustrated and um, the number of reasons brought it to or the point where I was just like, fuck, I am not going to keep pushing this dude to understanding what he might never understand. So I kind of ended the band effectively and I might've done it too soon. It was a bit of a heartbreak and people get really, really emotional about that record because it is an emotional record. It's, it brings out all kinds of happiness and tears. And so I've actually had people sit there and cry about that album to me, like have tears in their eyes, talking about how much it meant to them. And so it was kind of, you know, it wasn't a thrash record. It was straight. Like I was telling you, it was like real organic rock. And, um, yeah, that might've been the most challenging thing to have that band fizzle. Cause if that, if it would have continued, who knows what I, what, what I would have been doing. There might not have been any of this forbidden stuff or, you know, we probably would have been on our like seventh album by now or something. And, uh, mm. I would have been living a different kind of life, but I like where I'm at right now. So uh, I don't really have those kind of regrets, but that, that is probably the most difficult period I went through. Yeah. You, you seem like as though you've got a contentedness of spirit and you're talking about things in, in a matter of fact way. So on that note, and I'll make this my final question for you. You've got a heck of a story to share, so please tell me you're thinking about writing writing a biography. I have, I have. I, you know, uh, years ago, when the world's changed so much, it was so funny. I, when I was younger, I was going to call that bio when drum risers mattered, because like <laughs> uh, in the old days, everyone used to fight about the riser. You know, like in in the Bay Area shows, like I'm not setting up in front of them. You know, there's, there's that whole thing, but it, yeah. it's things have changed dramatically since then. So that, that one doesn't stick, but yeah, I, uh, I've been approached about doing that a bunch of times and, um, it would be an interesting book. I don't know if I could do a tell all because I don't really want to bring people down, you know, like, um, I, I can tell most. <laughs> when you, when you, when you, when you think you've given it up, like when you get to the Rolling Stones guys age, that's when to do it. I think when you're in your seventies or eighties, yeah, years away. They're not giving it up till they're now. dead. Those guys aren't going to give up till <sighs> they're dead. Charlie Watts was in that band till he died. You know, like 
started with taking, Brian Johnson. Or they must Brian, be taking what, the, was it? Brian Jones. Yeah. Brian Jones, yeah, but they must be taking the baby's blood that Ellen takes, Ellen DeGeneres takes. You know, that adrenal chrome or whatever it is, you know. How the hell do they yeah. do it? Don't, dude, that's that's a tool. That's a QAnon fucking. I'm just joking. That's a QAnon thing. Yeah, okay. Because I mean, I was a guy who's a conspiracy guy or, or former conspiracy guy. That, that fucking QAnon shit is the biggest crock of fucking crap. Once you're connecting a guy like Donald Trump into Jesus Christ, you got yourself in the wrong fucking rabbit hole. You know, that's that's just that's just fucking insanity. So that's what that whole thing is. But yeah, I've heard about it. And I think I evidently that's been they say it's been done for you know thousands of years. And but you know, well, you that, that's a different subject. The, I, the conspiracy theory. I could talk about just... that shit for a long listen, yeah, I could go down that road for a long time. But you know, I had to I tell people. I had to pull the ripcord and jump out of the fucking conspiracy plane once this whole Trump thing came along, dude. I was like, I'm out. Because a lot of my yeah. friends stayed in and they got all, oh, yeah, he's going to change. You know, JFK Jr. is still alive. And they'll, they'll stop it, you fucking mm. morons. I feel bad yeah. for people to get sucked into that. Because it I is a fucked they're up just world. Looking for an outlet. Yeah, they're just looking for an outlet, I think. And they're trying to make sense of life because not a lot makes sense because of all of the, it's really just the massive information we've got at the moment. And I think it causes people to go a bit haywire. Well, in the song Omega Wave, I really broached the subject, you know, and, uh, you know, if you listen to the song, the whole middle section of that song, the middle breakdown, caught in a web of disinformation, you know, it's, mm. it's, that's where we are as people. You can't possibly know all the things you think you know, because you're not in that lane, you know, mm. and unless you are, I, I've, I had this conversation with Jamie Josta and, and it, and unless you are like, you know, uh, a blue-blooded family, or in the CIA, or have some sort of military clearance, or you're fucking, you know, a high-level politician, or you know, you're not going to know any of this shit. You're just going to get hearsay. And, the, the and other you issue, can make up stories. You know, yeah, story the, after story could be fed to you, and you wouldn't know what's real, but you can believe them all. Yeah, except for when there's been inquiries, like with this Mueller report and the uh, one that was just released last night about the bloody Hunter, lap Hunter Biden laptop story and the Russian collusion stuff. The Democrats ran with that for so long and it was all bullshit. And unfortunately, when they run with these narratives, it feeds into this other stuff where people go, see, that was true. They were definitely deliberately hiding things, which it turns out is factually the case. And that means that they They're start embellishing things. these. Well, look at Epstein's yeah. flight log. I'd love to see bloody who was on that. Bill Gates and Bill Clinton well, and all those psychos, and Donald Trump. I mean, it's it's endless. It's, it's these these are scum. These people are scum, and you, you know, and people that they're going to um, hold them up in a higher regard, and you know, idolize them as somebody that's going to change the world. If you want to be a president, you have a problem. <laughs> Your ego, and and you know. Uh, you, there are no normal people that want to be a president. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you just take your choice of what your my favorite color is pink. My favorite color is green. You know, like, it's they're all fucking scum and they're all fighting for their own self preservation and and putting the finances and the money where they want it for them and their people and their bankers and their you know stocks and their everything. This is not the, it's not going to change. That's what politics has turned into in the year 2020 anything 
Yeah, it's a little too authoritarian. It's so, a little too authoritarian at the moment, too. That's we've certainly had that here in Australia, and I know elements of. Uh, you're, you're still in California, right? San Francisco, or are you elsewhere these days? Yeah, uh, well, Bay Area. Yeah, yeah. No, we had you know we have our own problems here. It's not as bad as anyone says, you know, but we have our own problems here. And uh, and I th- I was on the tip of the iceberg, you know, for all conspiracy stuff for many many years, and I just. I, like I said, I pulled out the ripcord when the Trump thing came along because I was like, I know this is getting to be cult. You know, you're in a cult, cult 45, it turned out to be. And uh, yeah, I got out. And, and luckily I did. I have another, I have many friends who didn't. And I, I have one friend who basically lost his life because he believed everything and he went, he, he, he went insane. And he ended up getting killed in the crossfire, killed oh, in the crossfire of accusation. and. Um, there's just no way to fucking know what's real, man. Unless you're in it, you know. I watched some moron just today break off every half-baked conspiracy that he was asked in, a, in an eight-minute period that fell all flat in his face. And there's everything, every half-baked thing he'd ever heard, he wrapped it up in one, in, including that. Uh, who's he saying? Uh, James Woods is probably playing uh, uh, Joe Biden on uh, on TV to sh- to show people. You know what would have happened, and Donald Trump's really doing the shadow presidency. I'm like, bro, bro, you are fucking gone. But that's yeah. what they believe, and people, you know, they're fucking crazy. They're so, on the yeah, you got me on. You got me on one. You got me on one. I lost a great friend of this stu- stupid shit. You know, and I believe my fair share of stupid shit along the way. Right. I love. You know what I like? I like it when conspiracies were cool, like aliens. And fucking when 9-11 happened, I can get behind that, you know, there's no way that thing goes down without some sort of help in, in collusion from our own government. Because you can't have a day where no planes are flying. You know, like things like that. Building number seven didn't get hit, but it did get imploded. Those are interesting conspiracies to me. Beyond that, when you get all this new shit, I'm out. See ya. Well- the alien stuff has got a lot of weight to it these days. The people that have been on Joe Rogan's show and other shows too, like Commander Fravor, and the Navy isn't denying that what he no, saw was a was what do they call UAPs or whatever unidentified aerial phenomenon these days, rather than UFOs. So they're, the fact that they're even trying to change the language around it hints that they're aware. Right. I mean, the authorities are aware that something's going on. And just near you, just south of you, I know it's nowhere near you, but San Diego. There, there's a lot of activity off. Yeah, uh, that, that's. Uh, Stuff happened years ago, and it's, I've never had a doubt about extra dimensional. You know, to me personally, that doesn't sound crazy. You know, I mean, and I tell people, you know, it could it could be time, could be time travel, could be us for the future, the past. If time travel is ever going to happen, that means it already happened, right? Well, I, I did some research, uh, being a journo, and I think, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, but the statistic is for life to flourish in just in our solar system alone, so not the broader universe, the statistic is like something around one in a hundred million million, which is a, a real number, apparently. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in aliens because we don't know. We see, like, like the God question, we just don't know. Nobody's really come back to inform us of what happens in the year after. We just have beliefs, right? But... The trans-dimensional theory actually holds up with regards to quantum physics and, and theories around that. So exactly. I think rather than it being a, a flat linear plane, 
things sort of being folded next to each other. And it probably is us, mate, in tens of thousands of years' time, maybe millions of years' time, where we've long and truly evolved to not even needing a body. We've become part of the ether. Um, coming back to just observe some of the places we fucked up and went wrong, maybe. I mean, the thing is, who knows? Right. And conspiracy theories are just a way to try to answer these questions, I think. Yeah, they are. It's, it, it, as I, I revert back to what I said earlier, it's not our lane. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you're going to dwell on it, you're going to waste your time. If you could just have an interest in it and be more of a hobbyist about it and realize that you're not in the, you're never going to have those answers. Slayer said it. Before you see the light, you must die. So, I mean, there's some things that just, they apply. There's a certain amount. Of, you don't want to be like be, uh, you know, passive and give up or anything. I don't do anything of the sort. But I just realized that my place in the universe is more of an observer that will never quite understand it all. And I just got to deal with my family, my life, my guitars, my, you know, I've got shit in my own life, in my lane, that I can't control what's going on fucking 5,000 lanes over that way and over that way. Oh, I think there's a certain certain Mm -hmm. amount of, uh, you know, comfort in knowing that you're you're only going to do your part in your lane, you know? I could try to jump from lane to lane, and I have some sort of, uh, you know, I have some sort of public sway with a very small amount of people, or I can, you know, I can make a few thousand people go, ooh, ah, but it's not really, not that big, man. Then I listen to guys like, you know, Stefan from the Deftones talk about, you know, flat earth being a certainty, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't want to be one of those cats, you know? <laughs> it's like, it's just, Maybe they've just got too much time on their hands, too, guys like that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why they bother talking. I mean, he's a great, great fucking guitarist. Eggies, I mean, he's the, he's the. Oh, he's fucking awesome. He's a great dude. He's great, great dude. I had good times with Stefan over the years. He, in fact, I got brought on the Jamie Johnson show for the first time to do a flat earth debate because uh, Tom Maxwell from Hell Yeah, uh, they were starting to talk about conspiracies. Like, you know, you got to talk about conspiracies. Craig Lucisro, he's, he's a big space guy. Like, I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just a guy who talks and understands <laughs> that I yeah. don't understand. I understand there's no understanding. That's what I understand. But I do know that our earth might not be completely perfectly round, but it is spherical. And there's a million fucking things to demonstrate it every day. And if you've got to make up bullshit just to fucking, you know, or believe in something just to somehow make yourself feel like it's, you know, there's a bigger, greater truth being held back. I feel sorry for you, dude, because every fucking satellite that gets sent up in there, you know, in our atmosphere, like, I mean, what do you do? I had a guy, in fact, on that show, the guy, Flat Earth Dave, was like, well, that's, you know, that's all helium. You know, they use more helium in NASA than any other thing. Why do you think they use that? Because they're hanging those things. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah. So he's trying to <laughs> answer. Like, he's trying to answer. He's trying to put credible theories or put credible answers in front of all of these things that ultimately are just bullshit. Yeah, no, I, I understand your attitude toward uh, conspiracy theories because it's mine too. I've talked about it a lot on the show and I've said there is so much to worry about in the here and now. If you've got a family, mortgage, if you're being, if you're in a band, um, your community at large, there is so much for you to be effective and to focus on there. Why bother with all of this bullshit that could never be proven? What's the What's the goddamn point? Well, if you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to go into something and, and make a difference, you said at a very young age, you either got to go into, like I said, some sort of military 
you know, expertise and, and then you realize, well, if I know it, I can't even say it. Just like science, the highest level astronomers and scientists, they can't talk about what they really know. They wouldn't get the grants. They wouldn't get, you know, they can't just blurt out the secrets of the universe. They would never get any kind of clearance to talk, to, I mean, to, to research what they research. You're not going to find out what's going on, you know, at the CERN lab. They're not going to tell you each day, like a daily report about the God particle. You're never going to know. You're just, you're just, we're all just fucking people, you know, trying to exist, man. And it's, and it's like I said, it's kind of comforting to kind of come to that conclusion and still be able to talk about these things without getting totally fucking wrapped up in them and losing yourself. It's a hobby. It is a hobby, but some people take it too seriously. And I think having children is the great leveler, meaning that once you've got young lives to foster and to mentor and to raise and you're entirely responsible for, a lot of the other stuff you just see through just naturally because you know what's real, what's real and tangible is sitting right in front of you. And I I read, you know, Tom DeLonge might be onto something from Blink-182 or whatever band, Angels and Airways, whatever band he's playing in 2023. And there's there's the star set. There's Star Set Enterprise, I think they call it. What is that band? There's another band. They seem to be, these organisations seem to be seeding into the minds or sharing information with prominent musicians and people in the arts, if you like, and some sports too. Like, Dave, you probably know David Icke. You probably heard of David Icke because he's the lizard guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. So. I've, been, I've been familiar with David Icke for 30 fucking years, dude. over 30 years. And Bill Bill Cooper was my in, in, in the whole thing. So I've been mm. down that road. I've I've read The Matrix. I had the book in my hands. I've I've read you know Beyond the Pale Horse, all those Behold the Pale Horse, but all those all those things I've done it. I still never lost myself. I I definitely got peaked interest. I still never lost myself. Here's the thing, and we can end it with this. We're talking. I'm glad we're talking about something other than music because it's cool. It's, it's interesting. This is interesting stuff. People should people should that are that are going to be offended because I'm blowing it all off. Don't be, because I just realized something that you might not. Okay, like you you can and I, I'm a revert, revert sorry revert back to what I said earlier. It's a lane that you're never going to fucking be a part of. It's not who you are. If you read something that you truly believe to be true that offends you greatly and deeply and, and moves you. Like you're, you're not going to change the world by screaming about it on the internet to your friends on a fucking post, or you're not going to do it trolling on somebody's post yelling about what you believe to be true. And you should fucking believe what I believe because this is the truth. Cause guess what? You don't fucking know and you will never know because you're just you and you're not in their fucking world. Sorry. It's really kind of comforting to know that you don't got to get involved in that. And if you, you know, if you want to go fucking break up Pizzagate, you see what happens. It, you know, it wasn't fucking there. You just, what did you just do? You know, you just basically fucking put your life in peril at risk for fucking nothing that you could change. If Even if there is pedophiles everywhere, they've always been everywhere. And you got you to gotta get them one at a time when they fucking surface. Other than that, you're not really going to fucking find them. Just telling you, it's like, it's like cockroaches, dude. They exist. Sorry, a horrible thing, but you're not going to dig them up on the internet yelling at somebody. Mm. Not going to happen. And, and, and I'm guessing you won't be reaching out to John Schaefer anytime soon to do a tour. <laughs> I did an interview. I used to have a show. 
I, and yeah. it's called the Omega Wave show after Omega Wave came out. And I did an interview with John Schaefer. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, in certain ways, I was like, well, you know, he's fucking really into it. Like, it's kind of, you know, impressive how into it he is. But then, I mean, by the end of that interview, me and my friend Bill Shields, who had that show together, we called each other. We're done. We're like, dude, he's he's fucking dangerous. Like, he is dangerous. He's a guy who's, you know, he what he did on January 6th, being in the front row, and then fucking, and then, then in turn being arrested and then doing a flip over and fucking turning everyone else in. What else do you need to know? Hmm. What else? I mean, what else do you need to know? Not just about Sean Schaefer, but about what he realizes about what he believed. Yeah, I just kind of understand well, why what you, you fucking need to know. Way. Either way, well, well his, career, his, career, his, career like fuck. His, his career is completely fucked. And he'll have a few people that will always be into it and champion him. But, you know, the majority are always going to know there's the guy who fucking bet on the wrong horse went all the way to the fucking, you know, into the race and then back the fuck out for self-preservation because he knew it was all bullshit. That's who fucking John Schaefer really is when it comes right down to it. He's another guy who got duped, who believes a bunch of bullshit and then had to fucking back the fuck out. Indeed, mate. Yep. Well, this oh, believe me, we could talk for hours on this topic here, but I better let you go to the next one or uh, enjoy the rest of your evening. It's been a pleasure to finally I, catch up. I, you know, I got I got to make dinner. I, I'm making dinner. The wife's working tonight. She's a nurse, so it's like right now it's four o'clock right on the button here. So I'm I'm gonna uh, I have a tri tip going on the grill. I'm smoking right now. Nice work, mate. No worries. Enjoy that, and uh, thanks very much for the chat. Yeah, th- thank you. It was very interesting. I'm glad we breached for all the people that wanted to just hear about music. Sorry, this is the fun yeah. stuff. It is indeed. <laughs> well, until the next one, mate, I'm going to come up with some uh, some more interesting. Uh, well, I'll be more planned. I hadn't had any questions about that side of uh, that side of the social consciousness, but I'm going to develop some more in preparation for our next one. Because no I'll do it. I'll do. Be. I would be happy to do a part two with you. We can do that. Yeah, sweet. No worries, mate. That'd be great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Have a great one. Cheers. Uh, you too. Well, there you have it, ladies and gents, a conversation with Craig LeCicero. And as I said up top, and as you can hear, or as you heard toward the end there, Craig's keen for a part two. I certainly am. So I'll hit him up sometime in the near future. Now, if you enjoyed that chat, there are many more just like it over at scarsandguitars.com. And if you like listening, maybe you like reading because I've written a book all about the conversations that take place here on the Scars and Guitars podcast. Click on the link in the banner and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. Download a sample, and if you complete the purchase, please do hit me up because I want to thank you personally. Now, I've got some more information to share with you about the book, but before we get to that, I'll bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. Until next time, it's a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary. 
such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was very, you know, very open-minded and, and he was into having his, his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for, for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.